Hello, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm Anjali Beatty, and I'm joined by my favorite data enthusiasts, Michael Wolf and DBS. On this episode, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, behavioral science, and what it actually is. A quick hint, it's more than nudge theory. So behavioral science basically just looks at the, the subject of human actions. Why do people do what they do? And under which circumstances could we change that? And it actually uh, encapsulates multiple fields of study, including um, psychology, cognitive neuroscience, economics, but also the behavioral aspects of um, maybe biology or law or political science, as long as it involves humans and that question, why do they do what they do? So I guess for, for someone in this field and people um, interested in the, in the field of behavioral science, it's inherently natural, curious, and possibly um, a bit of jack-of-all-trades. It sounds like you just described everything, like behavioral science applies to everything. Yeah. <laughs> where do we actually take that and start to deconstruct it in a way where we can start to measure human behavior around things like business challenges or marketing challenges? I think that the right answer to that would be that, that although people are incredibly complex, they're very predictable at the same time. So I think it is extremely interesting how, how this area, this, this field of study, because it encapsulates so many things, focuses on a central research question or a research problem. And I think inherently, all the examples that you just used focus around a central question. And inherently, that always involves humans. You want people to do something, click on something, buy something. It involves humans. And therefore, I think it's a fundament for, for a lot of core questions and, and strategies. How do we measure human behavior? And how do we measure psychology? Oh, there's a, there's a wide variety of, of ways how to measure human behavior. I think the easiest one uh, would be just observation. Looking at things, looking how people behave and trying to find an explanation. Why do they do what they do? So looking at, at their context. And context can be assessed through, through various dimensions, such as um, culture, maybe, but also uh, other, other factors. So I think it starts with observation. And obviously, since this is a podcast on data and data science, we now move into, a, uh, I think, a topic where uh, we all three have a lot of passion uh, for, which is, is language and the language that people use and the way they express themselves and how to derive uh, uh, data from that and insights from that to understand humans better and the decisions that they make. DBS, so... From the data science perspective, how would you use language to understand human behavior? What does that involve? What does that involve after knowing you guys? Or what does that involve before meeting you guys? I, I, I would say both, actually. Both might be interesting. <laughs> what did that involve before meeting us? And what, what does that involve now? You know, what I would say is a lot of the, the language models uh, that exist out there at the moment, you know, these big machine learning Algorithms have been trained on on billions of, of of tokens. Most of them actually just huge chunks of the internet, right? Um, are largely black box, right? Deep learning algorithms. There's a lot of work to try and understand how they make predictions and um, and, and how they actually understand language. But in general, they're they're kind of black box. And 
what we kind of have is, is, is two kind of relevant things I'll, I'll say here. One is this idea of, of semantic relationship, like the, the relationship between words, which can e- you know, easily be uncovered by language algorithms and are super effective, like the relationship between you know, how the word sat and the word cat uh, are used in combination with each other. And the context that surrounds those words is quite an effective uh, area of, of, of natural language processing. Uh, and then the other is, is, we've talked about this before, but it's supervised learning, right? You're training an algorithm to look for certain things. And I think uh, that first instance of, of semantics, like, you know, when we met, when I met you guys, um, I always thought about that as topical, right? So I can understand which topics exist in, in text. And that was always my, my first kind of thought. But when I, you know, when we started looking at, at the power of these language models is more about context and you know to what michael was saying earlier on about understanding people and how they talk and what they talk about and in what situation i think this idea of context can be really powerful but you have to think about the people right and this is where you guys come in and and i guess my new thought track which is text is been generated from from people and if we look at text as, you know, a representation of what people think and how they portray that uh, within data, which is the text that we, we consume, we can start to understand that context in, in, you know, from a people perspective. And then the second part around supervision, I think, you know, the, the thing that, that I really value from, from what Mike was talking about earlier is the theoretical foundations of, uh, of what you guys do. Right, so you have this this explainability about you know how people think and why, and if we can bring that into how we supervise our algorithms to learn, then we kind of you know we we hit hit it from both angles, uh, which I think you know historically we haven't really done. We've always trained, and I always say this, but we've always trained our algorithms on kind of performance objectives you know, with the end goal in mind rather than the end person or trying to understand the person. So I think, you know, in general, ML can be used for, for many things. But for me, in the discussion we're having today around what is behavioral science, it's more about giving you tools to try and understand, you know, these pieces uh, as opposed to just training it to optimize a, a performance metric. It's more about using these to, to understand the explainability of the data and then feed that back into the theoretical side that, that Mike was talking about a minute ago. So a lot of agencies and a range of different companies will look at behavioral science from the lens of observable behaviors. So search terms, for example, a range of, of different things. I think my favorite is uh, engagement metrics. But in this context, you both mentioned language a few times. Why is it so important to look at language, let's say, over observable behaviors? I think language and the way people express themselves will get you to that deeper, more unconscious layer. So while people may express that they 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 like something or do something, the more they speak and the more they explain why they do what they do, you get to that very unconscious layer that people often don't realize themselves. Uh, they're, they're the core intrinsic motivators, basically, something we talked about in the in the previous podcast as well. 
And when you can uncover those, that's when you can super supercharge all your strategies because that's where you really fully understand why people do what they do, but also what they might need in their context to to change that. So it's it's full understanding what in the military we would call moving from situational awareness to situational understanding, like fully understanding and also becoming uh, on 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 that side an advocate for that audience. Because I think that's in the end what what data science uh, and and behavioral science, that combination gives you. You become an advocate for a certain audience because you truly understand them uh, where they might not fully understand it themselves yet. And I think there's many examples, whether it being uh, during uh, the COVID uh, pandemic for vaccine uh, acceptancy uh, or adapting a better lifestyle or or changing medication or or whatever problem we, we face. Sometimes people don't even realize why they're doing what they're doing. And I think this gives that that opportunity. So you just talked about COVID. We've talked about sort of the innate understanding psychology and subconscious factors, intrinsic motivators. Through analyzing language and using behavioral science approaches, what could you understand about me, for example, and my beliefs about COVID and the COVID vaccine through what I say and what I communicate. I think that's where you become to uh, uh, core beliefs and core values, um, where before you might say, I'm not taking the vaccine because I think it's, it's, it, it poses a risk to uh, my fertility, or I don't want to do this because I don't want anything foreign being injected into me because I don't believe that will contribute to, to my health. All those texts imply that you are afraid of something. So addressing that fear might help you in lowering that threshold to accept it in the end. So I think what we often don't do is try and understand those fears, try and understand those motivators and saying, but why do people do that? Creating empathy for that audience. So rather than judging them and saying that's weird or that's strange or I don't understand why they're doing it, it's creating a core understanding of why you fear that specifically. DBS, how would you measure that? And what would be some of the variables like specifically that you would be measuring to understand my belief systems or to be able to detect my fears? Yeah, I mean, Micah went a completely different route to, to you know, where I would have, have jumped to, which demonstrates, I think, our different mindset. Like for me, you know, you, you asked about the the value of language over engagement metrics, for example, for for me, it's it's again back to my kind of topical uh, view of the world. I, I, the idea I sort of was a review, uh, and you know someone could give a bad review or a good review, but if you have the text, you can understand you know what where that comes from and what was the specifics around that product that someone wasn't happy with. And then building on that and layering to, I guess, what Micah just said is, is the reasons why, right? And and I think when you t- talk about product reviews, you're not going to really get the depths of beliefs, right? We're going to have to have, and this is why I started with this example, we're going to have to have a good amount of language from that person to start to understand that. So you're not going to get it from, you know, 100 words in a, in a review about a razor. If we have more text about, multiple kind of viewpoints from that individual and things that they've said over time and and it gives us a better representation then we have a 
you know, much more to go on. Is is that also the the problem, DBS, in in sourcing data and and sourcing those pieces of text? We we always search for them in the obvious places. So if we want to talk about vaccines, we go onto a vaccine producer's website and and read the responses. But we also know that the people that are on that website are already intrinsically motivated to visit the site and leave a comment. So where do you go search for conversations that might have nothing to do with with vaccine or vaccine hesitancy, but does lead to uh, fear-based motivations not to take a vaccine? Does that also have to do with creativity in where do you source the data from? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of, of kind of bias as well. I mean, w- where you look biases, you know, the analysis that you run. You know, a great place to look is some of these kind of, they call them, you know, town halls, I guess. Things like Twitter or Reddit, right, where people have discussions about a variety of things. I mean, on, on Reddit, you've got, you know, the, the vaccine-specific threads, that discuss vaccine, but those individuals then go on to, uh, you know, other discussions and talk about other things. And it's when you start to bring and and connect viewpoints on vaccines or viewpoints on, you know, 5G together, you start to piece and understand someone's viewpoint across multiple topics. And I think Twitter is another great uh, way of, of looking at, you know, at what people's, people have said over a period of time and making those connections across different viewpoints of different things because I think you know what you'll find is that the, the the beliefs and the values they persist through different topics right and it's the connection across those and it helps to kind of highlight the, the reasons I guess uh, 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 across the text so I mean and they're all kind of open to the world in terms of data sources um, there is you know potential bias I guess there are certain types of people that use Twitter and certain types of people that use Reddit, but it's a lot more representative than looking on a on a vaccine um, discussion forum or a yeah a health site. So um yeah. And 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 then back to your question, Anjali, about how do we measure, you know, beliefs and values. I think, you know, there's there's two kind of distinct ways of doing that. Um and back to kind of how you train ML, I think this is a, is quite a good example. You know, one is to supervise that model. So there's been quite a few different language models that have been trained to identify emotions, for example, so joy or fear. Um, and I know this is kind of very high level. It's not to the depth of what Mike is trying to trying to get to here, but I'm just starting with a simple example where, you know, hundreds of thousands of examples have been labeled to say this piece of text shows this type of emotion, right? And then, you know, we feed that into the algorithm. It starts to understand which language is used to convey um, different different emotions. We can talk about caveats to that in a the, in the moment if you like. But the other one, which I, I think I would bring up at this point, is kind of more of a what some in the machine learning field might call old school, but actually, you know, I really value this, is, is more kind of a, a linguistic approach, uh, you know, lexicon or dictionary-based, where certain words indicate certain measures. Um, and, and these are things like Luke, for example, um, which for me, even though they're simplistic in their kind of approach from a from an algorithm perspective, uh, basically the occurrence of certain words indicate certain measures. So it's kind of a counting approach. Um, and, and there's some weighting and some, you know, a little bit more complexity in there as well. But essentially it's a, 
It's an identification of words and counting of words. But every one of those words has been backed by academic research. And, and that's what I think those types of models, although they're simpler, you know, bring to the table is they are explainable. And they give you those outputs, which you can interpret as experts in, in your field. So. You've both mentioned a few times motivations and specifically intrinsic motivations. Can you give me an example of what some of those are? Like, what are we looking at there? Are we looking at values? Are we looking at a need to belong? What are some of those things that make somebody intrinsically motivated to do something or to not do something? I think uh, I would bring uh, uh, something into that one that everybody understands, which is uh, maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Everybody knows that pyramid, huh? that you first need uh, uh, safety, security and shelter and, and that moves all the way up to, to self-actualization, which is the highest form. In motivations, I think, especially intrinsic motivations, why are they so very important to understand? Because that goes into that self-actualization. It really who people is at their fundamental self and not only individuals, but also groups of people, entire groups of people, because generally I think that's what we want to understand. All those difficult examples that we had, getting people to uh, report on human trafficking, uh, adopting a better lifestyle, um, uh, taking a vaccine, all these examples involve groups of people. And I think understanding group motivations uh, next to uh, next to individual intrinsic motivators are, are, are key there. And I think you can easily do that uh, using uh, the techniques that DBS was just referring to. Because this, this concerns things like a locus of control. How much do you feel that you're in control of something? Does that matter to you? Do you want to be in control of something? If, if you're able to identify if people have that need or are motivated by that, uh, you can use that uh, to craft uh, um, more targeted uh, strategies. So you mentioned specifically locus of control as an intrinsic motivator, but what are some things that, are, that you specifically look at when trying to understand intrinsic motivations and how those would lend itself to a certain behavioral outcome? I think the need to belong or sense of belonging is, is a good uh, example of that. How much do you need people around you? How much do you feel it is it, you need that to exist? Is it a motivator for you to maybe perform better at your job? Uh, that you belong to, to a company, that you feel that you belong, that you feel that you contribute. How much does that, that motivate you? So, so maybe the premise that material possessions doesn't make life any much better, but belonging to a group or belonging to uh, to an environment does. That's a great example of um, an intrinsic motivator that you could measure. So to put this into context of a, a previous episode where there was a certain flower delivery that occurred in the middle of the episode, what would be some intrinsic motivators that you would look at within that context to understand why that certain flower delivery was done? I think that would be recognition and the feeling that you were heard, that people think of you, that people consider you. We're herd animals huh? <laughs> by, uh, by, uh, by default. So the feeling that we belong to something, that people care for us, that we're part of a group uh, is, is a very core need that we always would like to see fulfilled. So uh, the, yeah, that <laughs> recognition part. That would be the best one uh, in that specific example. I just want to add to that. 
I was just looking through some some specific examples of measures, and the one I stumbled across was reward, the degree to which a person is driven by uh, an internal need for reward. <laughs> Fascinating, and <laughs> lots to discuss there, perhaps offline. I have a question for both of you, but DBS, I'd love your take on this first. Human beings are complex, like Micah said, and fundamentally we're irrational, especially if we're driven by belief systems and the elements of our subconscious. So why then does understanding psychology make human beings predictable and add a additional level of explainability to ML models? Do you know what, you know, what Micah said about human beings are predictable? I mean, I believe that as a a theoretical statement, but I don't believe that we are there yet um, in terms of, you know, how sophisticated our algorithms are at all, right? We can make some predictions and and some predictions are easier than others, like what movie you're going to watch or, you know, what product you're going to buy. But, you know, deeper things like things I would vote against, right? Or things that that would make me angry, you know, to a point where I would, you know, never walk in a store again. You know, things, things like the non-surface level, I think, are really hard to predict. And I think the reason for that is the accessibility of data and, and how deep we go. So I think, you know, there's, there's, those are two things, right? How much data we have and how we look at the data that we currently have. And for me, you know, the biggest value of thinking about behavioral science, which, you know, I previously didn't do two years ago, right, before I met you guys. It was all about, you know, surface level, right? Behavioral science allows you to think about data in a different way, right? So if you think about the end person, right, so if you're trying to build an algorithm to recommend things or to, or to provide uh, content, for example, like the, the social um, media platforms do, thinking about those people and who they are and the impact that those outcomes are going to have. And to a degree, that spiraling impact that can happen, like look at social media, for example, and this idea that you can get stuck in these bubbles, right? These these content bubbles where, you know, if you're slightly, you know, right wing or left wing or, you know, slightly leaning towards something, you could click on one piece of content. And then the next thing you know, the algorithm thinks, okay, this person is leaning this way. I'm going to throw them more content. And so your content feed is kind of uh, starting to, 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 to become narrow um, and starting to become, you know, very kind of focused on, on one area, but you as a person are not, focused on that right so and that in itself can have an impact on you as a person right it's a cycle because then you start to become exposed to certain things and then you start to you know not be exposed to maybe what you previously were which was loads of of, of viewpoints so if we think about the person and we think about the impact that technology and, and algorithms and machine learning is having on the end person that's where I think behavioral science is super important for two things. One is, you know, the impact, like I just talked about, that, that technology can have on people, but also the way that we can approach the data to look at the right things, right? So, for example, 
if I start to change the way that I talk on social, if I've shown a change, then that can be an indicator that what I'm pushing to that per person is having an impact on, on a certain thing. And there are other things that don't change, you know, and I'll let you guys talk to this, right? As people, there are certain things that don't change. If we look at those things and we can understand those things, but we just don't. We don't think about people. We think about optimizing, like say, measures and, uh, and metrics rather than thinking about the, the, the person. And those measures and metrics are, are interesting there huh? because you, you rightfully so said some measures never change. If you measure them correctly, some core principles that, that everybody that has done any uh, sort of uh, semester in behavioral economics or maybe nudge theory or, or any principle like that knows is some um, variables that we would like to measure hardly ever change. So a group's uh, locus of control or a group's propensity for change or a group's normative affiliation. I always say an alien spaceship has to land on Earth for that to fundamentally change very rapidly. So, and I think that's what I've learned from you, eh, DBS, if you, if you know what to input um, and if you know uh, that number is consequent, you can create models around it. And I think that is the new exciting era that we're moving into Now, uh, the realization that these principles that we actually use in behavioral science are that they're often static in nature and not as flexible as we might think. And I think one example would be if, if we do behavioral interviewing now, if we interview people and, and giving them uh, or, or even giving them a questionnaire uh, with, with, with Likert scales, we can measure that. So if we can do that already manually, I am, I am absolutely convinced you can do that um, using the approaches that you just mentioned. And we've seen it in action. Yeah, we have. I think another area which is, for me, is hugely uh, exciting that you talked about earlier, Micah, which is where do we look, right? And for, for me, like, the, the, the best thing about working with you is uh, you understand how people use different platforms and why they use different platforms from a, from your understanding of people, right? And then that allows us to do two things. One is either validate that with a, a ton of data, right? Or point our uh, focus at certain areas and then say, right, we're going to understand, for example, how certain groups um, try and influence other groups, right? On different social platforms. Where are we going to look? Right, so, so we can point at the right place and then apply, you know, the, the ML that we want to because we're looking in the right place. And that's the thing, you know, you can throw all the data you want, an algorithm, but if you're looking in the wrong place and you're, you're constructing the problem in the wrong way, it's, it's pointless or it's dangerous. That's, that's what we um, discussed a lot when we, we worked together previously. It's that system dynamics thinking. It's, it's thinking broader than just the obvious place. So if we want to, uh, uh, for instance, uh, analyze uh, right-wing extremist groups online, they don't only talk on those specific websites, on those specific forums, and it has multiple shapes or forms that it can take. People online are a persona. In real life, they are a personality. How do you combine the two and make predictions from it? Just, just because somebody's saying something online doesn't mean they're going to do it in real life. 
So how do you how do you distinguish the two? And I think we've also seen a lot of maybe not so effective assessments <laughs> made from that in the past in saying, yeah, they were there and they talked about it. And then you look offline in the real world and nothing happened. And you said, yeah, but that's, you know, people feel very comfortable sharing things online. If you don't have to put your own name <laughs> on it, you can be whoever you want to. But how can you make sure that you get the right data from the right place, from the right audience? Um, that, that means expanding, <laughs> expanding where you find them, expanding uh, how you look at it. You know, we, we talk about kind of this end-to-end process. And for me, it's at the beginning of the process before you design what you're going to look at. Yes. You need to think about behavioral science. At the end of the process, after you've built your algorithm and you've got your outputs, you need to then think about what it actually means. Right. So it's end to end and always back to the person or or the people. Do you think the data science community is actually doing that and embracing that approach? I think there's definitely a a shift. You know, there's a a lot of things that have happened recently. I think, you know, the whole coded uh, bias piece is, is big. There's also, you know, a lot of news about AI becoming sentient and you know I, I think some of it is is a bit you know is a bit rubbish but in general I think there is a shift now to to be able to explain and understand what's happening because it scares people the more powerful that these algorithms get and they are getting much better especially language the more we need to explain how they're working and, and why they're working and there's been lots of examples of technology gone gone wrong you know in terms of impacting people so i think it's becoming more important but as i said before i don't think the average joe you know data scientist is sat there on a daily basis thinking about what we're talking about now um and i think if they did they would find it more rewarding and more impactful you know on on a daily basis even if they are just optimizing an algorithm to you know to get more uh items in a shopping basket um which in reality that's that's you know some of the the tasks that they're doing is is not exactly exciting, but even as mundane as that is, you know, th- there's always a, a a bigger question, which is really what impact are we having on people's health, like you know, choices? Are we because of the way that we design our our website, are we making people consume more sugar and you know live a less healthy life? So, and that comes back to the product, and I think that the most fulfilling part of being a data scientist is is having an impact. And, you know, I think people just need to question more. And, and the more that they think about people in this way, the more they can question more. It's fascinating you say that because the most famous example, which you probably both figured I'd reference this at some point, but the most famous example of a profound impact that the combination of behavioral science and data science have had on society is in the political context and the voting context. And that's, of course, Cambridge Analytica, which I think we probably all agree that that wasn't the most positive outcome for society. So when you think about that example and other examples, and there are many of them that have occurred since then of the misuse of both of your crafts, how do we actually leverage these technologies and these approaches in a way that's both ethical, but also lends itself to a positive societal impact? That's being able to get the opportunity to prove that it can be used for good. 
And I think maybe in a lot of circumstances where you could, uh, you often don't get the opportunity because people are fearful. And that's also completely normal eh, from a behavior science uh, standpoint. If, if uh, you don't have enough uh, knowledge about it, you just reject it and say, no, thanks, not for me. But I think it's the, the opportunity, the opportunity to show that you can. So we, we need those occasional successes, which, which we obviously had for, for some of our former clients in saying, let's just give this a try and I'll show you how powerful this can be. But also being very considerate, which we, we did the same in using our own moral and ethical compass and saying, no, we will not use it for this because that is, that is fundamentally wrong. So yes, using it to, to meddle with elections, that's just fundamentally wrong. Uh, does that mean it's never going to happen again? No, because it, it probably will. Because like you said, DBS, I think this, this will develop in years to come. But, but for, for general audiences to understand it better and to embrace it, we need to show the good it can do. So using it on topics, for instance, uh, like climate change, adopting uh, uh, healthier lifestyles in showing that it has an effect. Uh, but that means you have to be given the opportunity yeah? and, and given the chance to, to show that. Proof of concept. You have to show that it works. Because otherwise people only see the negative where in fact it is incredibly positive and powerful. Yeah, and, and for me, uh, the, the importance of, you know, we talk about explainability of, of machine learning, right? That's one thing. <laughs> Actually getting big tech companies to disclose how their algorithms are making predictions and how they're being used and how data is being used, you know, it is, is something that really doesn't happen right now. You know, there's there's a great example of um, a test that Facebook did where they they tried to get uh, folks to go and vote, right? And they were hugely successful. There's a paper written on it. They saw a massive uplift, basically showing them content on Facebook and getting them to, you know, get off their bums and go and vote. Now, imagine that in the wrong hands, right? right? Facebook didn't need to disclose it. They just did. Now, whether or not we trust Facebook is, a, is, a, is another question, but th there's no governance at the moment. There's no requirement for all tech companies to disclose how, uh, how this stuff is being used. And, and I think, you know, that there is a movement and there's a, there's a push for this to happen, but it's not happened yet. So I think, Angelique, to your original question of how do we, how do we manage this? I think, you know, Mike is spot on. We need to prove the, the good things, but we need to govern the, the use so we can identify the bad things as well. And then DBS, who, who do you think is responsible when we talk about governance? Because I think it has to do with a lot of decision-making as well. Huh? There's a certain demographic and age group that is usually responsible for making those decisions. How do we, how do we educate those, those groups of people on what it actually is? Because I beg to differ if, if they know the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, on occasion, I think the congressional hearings uh, on, on, on Facebook were a good example. If, if people in those positions don't even know what it is to begin with, how do we educate those people so they can make better decisions? You know what, I think it's, I think it's um, looking to experts to want to, to get, you know, jump in into that ring, I guess, um, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the hearings, you know, I, that there were very few experts that were were there on the other side of the, of the bench, which is is criminal, really. Um, 
but I, and I don't I don't think that right now we're we're set up for it. But I think there is a there is a push, and there will be a push. So I think it will be you know a change in legislation. The enforcement of that I think is our biggest challenge, and how we ensure. But coming back to behavioural science, I still think that the way that they are building their thought process on implementing legislation. I mean, they're now thinking about tech, right? They're now thinking about AI and machine learning, but I don't know how much they're thinking about behavioral science, right? They're just, it's kind of, it's like risk assessment, right? It's a reactionary thing, right? Only when something goes wrong do they, do they you know, react. And I think the reason we put this podcast together, behavioral science plus data science, I think you have to put the two together. So I would like to see, you know, both of those, you know, have an impact on how we build legislation and governance and, and enforce enforcement. Um, and I think that's probably a bigger gap right now than, than the, um, than the data science piece, to be honest. I don't know what, what's your view, Micah? Like, do you see much of that? I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And that's again, uh, the, the proof of concept showing them how it works and, and mostly why it works the way it does uh, in order for them to, to embrace it. Because I agree with you. It was, it was absolutely stunning to see the, uh, the lack of knowledge uh, in such a hearing. I think that was one of the best examples, just complete shocker <laughs> that, uh, that they didn't know. So how can you expect to make decisions that are so important and are, are at the core of human society nowadays. Huh? Who doesn't have a cell phone? Who doesn't have social media? Who doesn't use the internet? So when we know that it's, it's, it's a core principle driving our societies, you don't need to just over-regulate it all the time because I think that's, that's impossible. You also need to embrace it and learn how to use it for good rather than just over-regulating. It's definitely a combination because the two don't work in isolation. And I think we've just firmly established the fact that the U.S. Congress needs to hire both of you as consultants because <laughs> they, they really need help. I think all governments really need help. I would love to hear your take, though, on where is the line between influencing human behavior in a way that's positive and manipulation? Is there even a line? Oh, God, that's a very... As a moral and ethical question at the same time, eh? because that's that's basically asking me, what do you think is good and what do you think is evil? <laughs> I guess as long as it doesn't inflict harm and hurt on people, in its essence, it needs to be good. And that's also difficult to establish, eh? because who who's good and who's bad? You'd mentioned a few um, previous use cases where you had to say no to working on certain things because of the potential outcome it could have. I imagine there's a lot of that that you can't really share, but if perhaps a, a little bit of context just to understand where, if you can't really draw the line between positively influencing versus manipulation, if you're looking at it from an impact perspective, where are those lines for you where you say, hey, we can't use it for XYZ outcomes, but we can use it for these other outcomes somewhere else. So, so next to regulation or government regulation, I think it's also up to your own individual responsibility. If 
you work somewhere and you're being asked to deliver something that you know from your own value set. <laughs> Saying, I'm going to contribute to something that I don't believe in because that is not of this day and age anymore. I think this will not do good for the planet. Or that's that's where I think I would draw the line in saying, no, no, I will not. I will not help on that. So there's also a personal responsibility. Like I said before, we cannot over-regulate anything. If we leave it up to one or two entities to decide for us what is good and what is evil, that's where it becomes very scary and, uh, and dystopian. But I would also like to believe that a lot of people, like we said in the introduction, uh, when we asked DBS, do you know how much power you can have when you when you build this is also teaching uh, early on in in everybody's training how much what that actually means if if you can develop them and what your own responsibility is in it to always be switched on and ask very critical questions like am i doing good what am i doing this for what am i building this for what if somebody takes this and and uses it for for not so good intent there's always a risk. You can you cannot <laughs> you cannot say oh that will never happen because it will. But I would I would put it uh, at, at at the individual as well. Your own moral compass for you to decide what it is you think is good and what you we should use it for. Yeah, and for me that is do not inflict harm, no no danger or damage. Put people in harm's way. Absolutely not. If you're asking people to take risk on their health, on their environment, on the world itself. I would definitely not use it. DBS, what do you think? Morally, I don't want to get into that. You know, I, I think it's not for me to say, but what I would say is we need to consider the impacts of what we implement. And I think that's putting in place the right frameworks to uh, to assess the impact on on people of, uh, of how we use these things. Um, and we have to consider you know, from a behavioral science perspective, we have to consider those impacts. So it's more about kind of the assessment and the framework to allow others uh, or individuals, like Micah said, giving individuals the power to make those decisions. You know, this platform is going to impact me in this way or, you know, um, this technology is going to potentially impact me in this way. And and this is how it, how it makes decisions and this is how it puts things in front of me. So I think, you know, it's more about just getting these things on the table for me than it is about kind of making a decision about what's right and wrong. Wow, food for thought there. Thanks, DBS. And thank you, Micah. And thank you for listening to us. My name is Anjali Beatty, and there's more from us at www.thepsych-aigroup.com and where all good podcasts live. <laughs>